What did he say? There's a guy in our quartet Talks like no one I've heard yet He mumbles, mumbles all the time He's got no reason and he's got no What did he say? You know, not gonna say so. What did he say? If I can go What did he say? He said, bring something round, we'll have a ball today. You are listening to the next voice you hear with Juan Yoon. Welcome to The Next Voice You Hear, everybody. I'm Juan Yoon, one of your hosts. I'm Nevin Ryan. Hello, humans. Hello, humans. It's always reassuring to hear you say that. So we uh, got a lot of great feedback on the Magical Mushrooms episode that we recently did, where we were inspired by the documentary Fantastic Fungi, which uh, I recommend everybody uh, watch. It's an amazing documentary about this psilocybin and mushroom movement. And because of all the great feedback and questions we got, um, we started talking and we decided to do an episode specifically on psychedelic medicine, a topic that's really emerging and starting to hit the mainstream. And one of our colleagues is, uh, has a lot to say about the subject. His name is Trevor Thomas. He is a senior strategist at our agency, Blavon Rouge, or BBR. Welcome, Trevor. Juan, Nevin, thank you so much for having me. Great to be a part of the conversation. Fantastic. So we're going to get all psychedelic, you know, on, on this one. And I think, Nevin, you have a famous story of how psychedelic medicine has been with us a lot longer than we thought. Yeah. And um, I just have to say, we all before this uh, before this session, we all took about two grams each. So it's uh, <laughs> going to be extra interesting. <laughs> Obviously, joking, um, but uh, yeah, no. Tre- Trevor did send a, an interesting link before we when we were starting to plan this podcast, and it was about a famous actor, uh, Cary Grant. I don't think a lot of our millennial uh, audiences would know about Cary Grant or anyone younger than that. So. He's a famous actor from the 30s, 60s. Um, I know him because he was in North by Northwest, which is like one of my dad's favorite films. But interesting enough, he actually went through some psychotherapy using psychedelics back in the day. Um, and he used it more of just, a, he realized he was suppressing trauma from his childhood. And uh, that definitely helped him in the acting game, I guess, channeling, channeling that in some way. But as those issues go, they kind of find a way of poking themselves out. Uh, And that happened to him when he was about 50. Uh, Like in 1958, his uh, wife at the time introduced him to a doctor, Dr. Hartman, and the good doctor prescribed him uh, some LSD. Um, And he actually took acid about 100 times um, with the doctor uh, in like a controlled environment. And the, I guess the the results on, on it was, for him, he just experienced like a, a measurable relief. Um, in those sessions, he he broke down like the trauma that he had experienced uh, when he was younger. Uh, like his mom, just when he was 11, just vanished one day when he came back from school and his dad abandoned him shortly after. Uh, so he kind of was on his own and he <laughs> worked with the acrobatic troupe and 
Uh, it wasn't until later life that he realized that his mom was still alive. Uh, and uh, he kind of had that that mistrust built uh, with women, he realized, was caused from that, that trauma, uh, which can kind of explain uh, why he had five ex-wives, um, which has got to be some sort of record. Uh, five ex-wives is, is crazy. But through those sessions, he was able to um, kind of break down that trauma, um, emerge uh, better from it, even reconcile his relationship with his mom. Um, and I just think it was just an interesting example to bring up because it was one, it was so long ago. And, and two, is a public figure uh, back in that day. So he's just one of the thousands of examples that we can pull from that just shows like where, where it was and where it is now in terms of that psycho, that type of psychotherapy. I think nowadays we're seeing that transition from like a, I guess, a regular Freudian therapy where we're like intellectually talking about things and, uh, and intellectually talking about change, but it doesn't really change much. And I think with the, with LSD and psilocybin, uh, and using those in a controlled environment with a doctor, it's like, it's more of an emotional change from what I, from what I gather. Um, so did this, did this come out recently that, uh, he was, he used psychedelic medicine or people known about this for a while because that's amazing they've actually think... known about it for a while Juan. oh sorry nevin yeah go uh, ahead yeah yeah it's it's a story that was actually pretty well known at the time and i think the the amazing thing about the story is the year 1958 because mm. mm. a lot of people when they think about psychedelics they think about the 60s and they think about sort of rock bands and artists discovering them in the, in the mid to late 60s mm. but it was actually in the 50s when they were first employed um, as treatment and as medicine, um, quite widely, amazingly. And mm -hmm. after Cary Grant kind of came out as a, as a psychedelic medicine user, there were other people around Hollywood and, and there was who started using them. And there were articles in places like Life Magazine about these transformative um, uses that, that were happening. And one of the other amazing things is that a lot of it actually happened in Canada and in Saskatchewan of all places was kind of a, a hub of psychedelic medicine and research in, wow. in the 1950s. And then it all just, it disappeared. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. So, and by the way, yesterday was Cary Grant's birthday. Oh yeah. Yeah. So Jan, weird. Jan 18. I saw a bunch of posts wishing him a happy birthday yesterday. I was watching yeah. True Detective yesterday and he was on on the television in the background. <laughs> so that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's crazy how we're talking about. I mean, he, he, is, he is the quintessential leading man, right? He sort of created that mold of what a yeah. leading man should be. He's too handsome. Know? And um, that's, that's amazing. How much did he take? <laughs> he took it a hundred times it says i don't know like the actual doses but it's like a hundred uh, sessions with his therapist i see yeah wow yeah uh and, and apparently worked but it's just it's interesting how like to trev's point like how that has it's been used and it's had that success but why why didn't it get um like why didn't it progress right was it the is it the war on drugs like why did these like misconceptions that we that we all know and that our parents probably told us um, what were those and why weren't they dispelled? You know? Yeah. I, I think it's the, the, the way in which and the time during which it got popularized 
in the 1960s, right? Mm -hmm. Where, you know, with Summer of Love and Timothy Leary, you know, and who, you know, were using it in many ways, using it brilliantly perhaps, but it got popularized in a way that kind of associated it with, what is the word, controversial, you know, practices. Mm -hmm. Or you can think of it this way, the 60s started to popularize these kinds of drugs and the 80s started, started to vilify them under Reagan and mm -hmm. uh, particularly Nancy and, and Ronald Reagan. So over the course of a couple of generations, they got framed in the public imagination with a whole lot of misconceptions and fears. Mm -hmm. One of the interesting things, one is um, in, in the 60s, and I mean, I'm, I'm not a tinfoil hat kind of guy, but uh, one of the things about psychedelic medicines in general is when you take them, uh, if, you, if you take them, you know, once or, or multiple times, they breed this togetherness and this, this sense of belonging, and they create a scale for the world and the universe that feels very unfamiliar, because you're, you're used to feeling quite big and powerful at times. And on, on psychedelics, everything, you, you feel very small and the world feels very vast, but you also feel very connected. Mm -hmm. And what was happening in a lot of the communities in the 60s is that that phrase from Timothy Leary, which was tune in, turn on, drop out. And a lot of people really were dropping out of society, like not just dropping out of school, but actually dropping out of society and trying to form communes in these new utopic mm -hmm. worlds, which is a huge threat to society and to the economy and to governments. And when governments saw that happening, they had to take action. And, and you're right, Nixon was, uh, was the president at the end of the 60s there when this was starting to come in. And he was a, a big proponent of, of shutting all of this down because in many ways it, it, it's a threat to the way that we live. It, it, sounds, it sounds crazy to say, but, uh, but it actually, it is true. Mm -hmm. it's, it's hard to, uh, it's hard to want to think about going to work and being a productive member of society. <laughs> and you know, that, that period is also where um, phrases like productive member of society you know, really started to get born. So you can see where the, the tension is. But I think along the way, therefore, um, people have, um, you know, been susceptible to a lot of misconceptions such as conflating psychedelics with uh, opioids, you know, um, that they're incredibly, uh, that psychedelics are dangerous and that they're addictive, which they are not, that they can make you go insane you know, um, that they're toxic, you know, in, in any dose, et cetera. So uh, I think um, there's a lot of re-educating that is happening or that is about to happen. The way I think a lot of us were re-educated about cannabis and cannabinoids over mm -hmm. the last decade, right? Where it's, yeah. it's, be it's become reframed and, and understood and therefore accepted in ways that it never was before, mainly driven also by uh, understanding the medical applications and how many people can be helped, you know, by it. And I think a very similar process is, is happening with psychedelics. It's no longer the devil's lettuce. Yes, um. <laughs> exactly. I do yeah. store it quite near to my lettuce now, though. So that does that. <laughs> <laughs> and I think why these things, um, 
why the, it's, it's just crazy how they're still illegal in some in some cases and the main reason it is they're illegal is because of these misnomers especially the one about them being addictive like the the un as of 2000 like from 2019 and the fda still classify it as an addictive drug um which is the reason why it's now like we're going through these back channels to to get um, psychedelic treatments or to get psychedelic drugs or all that kind of stuff. But I, I can see, as you guys have experienced too, it's like this is now becoming more mainstream and and more into the kind of the collective conscious that these things that we've been told our whole lives are kind of not true, um, but there's still some lingering effects for sure. So one of the things that we were going to talk about too is that you guys also had some personal experience um Mm -hmm. just with psychedelic treatments in your lives and i'm just wondering maybe like that's let's share some with our audience just so they don't (laughs) think we don't know what we're talking about in some in some respect that like saying i'm not just the president of the hair club i'm i'm a client yeah exactly (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah absolutely and i mean for me i'll get us started um you know i was living in new york uh, during 9-11 and my office was about a block away from ground zero I was living right across the river in Hoboken and if you know that part of the world there are two ways to get in to the city to commute you can either take the ferry or the path train that goes underground and and I was standing there at the ferry terminal with hundreds of people watching the whole thing unfold um, so, you know, obviously that was traumatic for, for anybody witnessing it, particularly people witnessing it right up close where in our case, we knew people in those two towers, our offices right nearby, and there was a proximity that was, um, just in- intense and powerful. Um, and I, through friends afterwards, I found out about a very experimental kind of trial that they were, uh, using. And these are people who were trained in the, originally in the Stanislav Graf method from Johns Hopkins of using LSD for curing traumas and whatnot. And um, so I went into a trial specifically designed for people who had been traumatized by 9-11. And, uh, and there was also a control group. And what was really interesting is the speed with which we recovered. And I personally, you know, I think probably at about the six month mark after you know, 9-11, I really felt quite healed from the experience and people I knew who had a very similar experience, but did, were not in the, the study. Some of them, for example, could not come out of their houses and come back to their offices in Manhattan for a year or two. The lingering effects of the trauma were that extensive. And these are people who literally were like next to the building and they, had, they were covered in ash as they were fleeing, you know, the implosion of the building, that kind of thing. Um, and so it was really striking to see the paths diverge between those of us who were in the study where we were using guided LSD therapy to help, I would say, incorporate this, this horrific experience um, to soften it and incorporate it into our stories on a, almost a cellular level, mm. you know, that, that it really went, I felt like I was undergoing molecular or cellular change or, or shift, you know, or uh, coupled with, or maybe inspired by and driven by these sort of profoundly 
allegorical stories that would emerge, you know, during the, the therapy. Because, you know, it's, it's a hallucinogen and you would have visions that kind of combined what you had perceived, i.e. Mm -hmm. this drama, with your underlying, you know, deep psychological process, your inner life, how, your, uh, how trauma that happened in your outer life had affected your inner life and your inner life reorganizing itself to accept it, incorporate it, and transcend it, mm. ultimately. And it was, it was a series of sessions you know, that we did every um, two weeks um, at, at first and then every month, and it was mm. guided. And um, I have to tell you, it just, uh, I felt like I went from feeling submerged by the experience to having, getting my head above water and feeling more at peace with it yeah. uh, very quickly. And then by the six month mark, I felt like I was completely functional again, unlike many of my colleagues. It was an incredible experience. It's interesting how you use the word like organize, you use the word organize there. And what I've been reading about this is that taking psilocybin or taking LSD, it's kind of reorganizing your reality. It's like, I guess, changing those mental models that you've had and that are either caused through trauma or just through through life in general. Yes. Uh, and it just disrupts it and kind of yes. a, gives you a new way of thinking about things. And I think that's what happened to Cary Grant. It's like, it kind of gives you a blank slate in a way or just mm -hmm. scrambles things up. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's interesting. The way some of the participants described it as, you know, you have a certain wiring in terms of your, psych your neuropsychology, right? In yeah. terms of just your thought processes and how you function during the day, how you operate in life. And the, that wiring that, you know, took years and, and sometimes decades to, to form, and for most people were very functional, in 2001, it was shattered. It was just completely shattered. You know, huge mm -hmm. parts of that wiring were shattered. And um, getting them to come back together, getting your whole psychology to rewire after that kind of experience where it could not go back to the old wiring. The old wiring was done. It was, it was over. But you didn't know what the new wiring was meant to be. Like, how do I, how do I take this in and move on, you know, move forward? And it, I think it created uh, the opportunity for people to do a deep kind of rewiring uh, back to a healthy place that uh, incorporated the experience, you know, yeah. didn't deny it, didn't push it under, right? Which is, of course, if you've been in therapy, that's the last thing you want to do. That's why you go to therapy because... You can't push these experiences under. You have to absorb them. And it allowed us to absorb them into a new frame of, of reality that was a little different from the old one, if you know what I mean, right? Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And, and get up and move forward. What about you, Trev? It's interesting. My story is actually uh, quite similar to Cary Grant's uh, in, in the true leading man fashion. Um, so I, I had a, probably a different but somewhat similar experience in childhood that caused trauma, um, which was related to my mom, and it manifested itself in romantic relationships with women. Um, and what, what I found, like from the time that I was a teenager and having like my first, you know, high school relationships, um, I was very clingy i was very insecure had a lot of like abandonment issues had no idea of words for these things as like a 14 15 year old 
but I noticed, like I noticed similar patterns as I got into my 20s and was trying to figure out what was going on because, you know, I think of myself as a rather confident, well put together person who was going out and looking for confident, strong women partners and then chasing them away very much unintentionally and subconsciously. But as I kind of went into my late twenties and then into my early thirties and, and, you know, started to put the, the patterns together, uh, I started to do some reading and I came across a, like a, a therapeutic method, which was not psychedelic at the time, but it was just a, a form of cognitive behavioral therapy and did about four or five years of that therapy and felt like I had got my hands around the problem. Uh, and the therapy that I was doing, my, my therapist was always, you know, she would take me back and, and, and the method was really about um, treating and, and healing the inner child, which uh, I found very difficult. So she would, she would say, you know, we're back in that moment, you know, little Trevor is sitting right there, you know, I want you to give him a hug. And I would just, I just couldn't, I, I couldn't, couldn't do it. Um, but I was right there. I was right on the cusp and I, and I had all these strategies. I, I, I guess I'd sort of moved like 25, 30% in the right direction and just couldn't cross that final line. And I sort of abandoned therapy for a couple of years. And then a friend of mine uh, a few years ago now uh, had spoken to me about psychedelic therapy, introduced me to, to Michael Pollan's book on psychedelic therapy and the history of psychedelics. And in reading about all of this, this world and the treatment, it felt like exactly what I needed because it, it what psychedelics do and what Juan was alluding to and what we've talked about today is they break down your ego. They, they basically eliminate your ego and they allow you to access parts of your brain that your, your ego and your consciousness are protecting. So trauma is generally hidden behind walls of ego and consciousness because your brain doesn't want to touch those things because they're very wow. difficult. And that's where I got with my therapy. I was standing at the line. It was a glass door. I could see into it, but I couldn't open the door. And so I was really lucky. I, I found a psychedelic therapist um, who agreed to work with me. And my process was there was kind of an intake period where we did a few meetings and, and conversations for them to get to know me. And then my session was um, like just a one day guided session uh, where I took a, a specific medicine and then uh, put on an eye mask and noise canceling headphones with um, some music playing. And the, the idea, which is very different than most people's experience with psychedelics, is instead of tripping out and kind of experiencing the world, you trip in and you just go, you know, from the old Beatles lyric, lay back, relax and float downstream or into the recesses of your mind. So you, you actually go deeper into your mind. And I was able to access those moments of trauma and actually go and, and sit on, on the staircase uh, where these things happened and had an absolutely incredible and enlightening experience. And like so many others, if, if you read about this and you read about psychedelic therapy, you'll see one of the common uh, reactions at the end of it is people will sit up, take off an eye mask or whatever it might be, and they say it's over. 
And that's what I did. I sat up after you know five hours of just lying on this this chair in, in, in this in this room. And I sat up and I took the mask off, I took the headset off, and I looked at my therapist and I said, it's done. And he's like, Oh, okay, so it's wearing off. And I was like, Nope, it's done. Like that's the end of it. And the most important part of any psychedelic therapy is uh, is actually the work that you do afterwards and the integration of, of what you learned and what you experienced. And I spent a number of months really working at that. It just happened to be the pandemic. So we were locked down. So it was perfect. I had nothing to do. Uh, so I, I did that integration work and um, slowly kind of brought myself back into the world and, and started to, to date again really slowly. And um, I, you know, to, to, to kind of show some uh, some ROI on all of this, <laughs> I, I got I got engaged in the fall, and I'm engaged wow. to a, a wonderful, strong, confident woman who takes no crap, and uh, I I am able to be a constructive and positive partner for the first time. Like I, I turned 41 this year. And for the first 40 years of my life, I, I wasn't able to do that. And now I actually feel like I, I'm, I'm in a relationship for the right reasons. And I, I, don't, I don't exhibit any of the signs that I used to exhibit. None of, none of the things that used to hold me back and, and, and chase people away, they're, they're actually all gone. And I credit that not just to psychedelics. I think the work that I did leading up to it is really important. I don't want anybody to take away that this is a miracle cure that you can just, you know, pop a pill or something like that and, and everything goes away. There, there's a lot of work that goes into it and you, you have to be in the right mindset. You have to, you know, really take the time to, to do the work. But if you do, it, it really can be absolutely life-changing. So, oh, okay. Oh, wow. <laughs> that was amazing. It's interesting as I've been reading more and more about it, like how it's just been in, it's been ingrained in a lot of different cultures and spiritual practices that like predate the Aztecs. So it seems like even though it was even in the 50s, the 40s and the 50s, it predates all of that. Um, and it feels like we're finally kind of catching up. It's like, uh, like if we, if a yes, scientist working absolutely. on this showed this to like a, uh, like I guess a a culture that that kind of used this in, in their traditional practices, they'd be like, yeah, of course this this does this does this. Like when you guys absolutely. spent like hundreds of and years. And by doing the way, this. you know, more more proof that psychedelics aren't harmful or addictive because you have a lot of Aboriginal societies, you know, whether it's in North or South America in the Amazon mm -hmm. River Basin, who where the shamans use whether they use you know ayahuasca, which is the naturally occurring form of tobacco which uh, in, in a very intense high dose tea is quite hallucinogenic or peyote or something else, that they've been using it as, you know, for insight, for healing, for mm -hmm. a number of things for thousands of years in some cases. And you do not see people running around addicted to it or dying from toxic overdoses of it. I've never heard a story of an Aboriginal village or culture no it's quite intense it. it's quite yeah. intense emotionally like I, I don't know why it would be considered addictive like why you would want to do that for <laughs> for a long extended period of time it, it's, it can be quite draining if you're using it rec recreationally and and also yeah. uh medicinally um so yeah i think th those are great stories thanks for thanks for sharing i think uh we can maybe close just if there's any other like recent advancements 
or uh, other kind of little cool tidbits that we want to share. Um, well, I actually wanted to go back to something that Juan said, because I think yeah. uh, it's pretty representative of, uh, let's just call it white culture, that we uh, we claim to have discovered this. And I think, you're right. <laughs> yeah. I, think, I think there are people from thousands of years ago that would be like, oh, you discovered that, did you? Um, and, I, and I think the other thing that you mentioned that's really important about those societies, like those, those indigenous cultures and the uses of these medicines is they're always employed under the guidance of an elder or a shaman mm, or yeah. whoever. It's yeah. nobody gets to take these things on their own. So peyote, which is another one that you'll find in, in different cultures, is only ever taken. It's, it's guarded and, and used in these very uh, deliberate ceremonies. And that's important to keep in mind in, with this as well. I think a lot of people yeah. think, oh, I'll just take this on my own and, and that will do the trick. It, 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 I'm sure you'll have a wonderful experience and, and it could be great, but these, these things are not for everyone. And Nevin, you mentioned, you know, earlier on today that, you know, they don't make you crazy. Well, they actually do make some people crazy. If you have certain uh, mental conditions, like if you're mm. schizophrenic, these things are not for you. And, and that's the type of that. thing that you really need uh, to educate and inform yourself on. And that's why working with people who really know what they're doing is so important. Yes. You know, when I entered this experimental clinical trial, I was extensively interviewed. Um, they asked lots of questions about medical history. Mm -hmm. They made sure that I did not have um, any addictions, alcohol, drugs, you name it, et cetera. And that, you know, that I was, in a sense, they had to, to qualify me uh, for joining this. And every session was guided. Mm -hmm. So I think the, the guiding principles are it should be um, guided and it should be purposeful. Because if you think about Aboriginal societies, it, they're always guided and purposeful when they go on a vision quest. They go into, you know, the mud hut when they Intention. you know, take. Yes, it's, it's, it's intentional and purposeful. And it's, it's very, very guided. You know, they manage, for example, what the dosage is, your physical surroundings you know, time to, to heal and recover from the experience, et, et cetera, and is highly ritualized as well. Hmm. I think what we're seeing now in, the, in modern society is that in Canada and the U.S., I'm seeing a lot of venture capital pouring into startups, you know, entrepreneurs who are doing, um, launching new psychedelic retail, as we call it, um, because people are starting to talk about the applications toward anxiety, depression, as you said, existential, you know, um, anxiety, which are prevalent and will become more prevalent today, you know, for obvious reasons, the pandemic and stories of ecological crisis and, and whatnot. Um, we're going to start to see a lot of brands uh, emerging in the psychedelic healthcare retail space um, over the next couple of years. It's a, it's a potential third, uh, third part to this series that you guys are running, which is the, the business, moral, ethical concerns mm. around who owns psychedelics. And there's tons of companies out in the world nowadays, uh, disclaimer, I'm invested in many of them, uh, that are coming up with analogs and synthetic versions of things like psilocybin, mm. and they're creating this whole new model and this whole new world of psychedelics that has whole, a whole pile 
of concerns that go along with it. It's it's fascinating, and there's there are tons of articles and things out there that I I'd suggest if it's something that you're interested in, just pop them into the old Google machine and, and see what you find. Mm -hmm. And one of you guys were referencing a 2016 NYU, yeah, uh, Johns and Johns Hopkins study, which I have I've not read. So do you want to talk about that? Yeah, no, well, I, I got it from Entangled Life, which is a really cool book that everyone should, should. it's very, like, um, I would say thorough in terms of how fungi uh, is, like, involved in our world, how it changed their minds, and, like, what's, how it's shaping the future in terms of, like, what Trevor's talking about. But in that book, I, I, I saw, um, they mentioned that study, which was done at John Hopkins and NYU, and I think it's just more like belaboring this point that we're talking about how it, um, they use it on terminally ill patients. So um, they gave psilocybin psychotherapy um, to terminally ill patients who were suffering from anxiety, depression, existential distress, whatnot. Um, and after one dose, they 80% of them felt substantial reductions in those symptoms of anxiety and, and depression. Um, and it lasted for six months. They felt like, and I think Trevor talked about it too, it's like that feeling of separateness that you have um, before you take these drugs to connectedness. Like you even, you feel small, but you, you get that sense of connect, how everything is connected, how we're all connected. Um, and that's why 70% of, of these people also rated this experience as one of the top five most meaningful experiences in their life. And these people have gone through meaningful experiences like um, a, a birth of their firstborn or a death of their mother or father when they're young. Or, um, so it's, it's incredible how these things are just, they're used in so many different ways and they, they seem to really kind of break down um, these, these mental models that we have or these uh, symptoms that we experience from either trauma or distress. And it's, uh, it's, quite, it's just another example of how awesome this is when done correctly. It's interesting, you know, that I, I know in the 60s, they were, there was a whole thing about, you know, getting off the grid, you know, um, and what I think the real value of, of psychedelic medicines can be, you know, a la this, this what the study suggested or revealed is that it, it's not the actual, you know, grid of society that you want to drop out of. It is the mental grid or a mental grid or framework or pattern that has been making you suffer that mm -hmm. it can you know sort of detach you from so that you can come back into the world and into society with a, a, a new perspective you know and and i think that's its its value i feel like the 60s took us on a detour you know they, they, they were their end point was then opt out of society and i'm much more of a, of a believer in opt back in but with a new way of seeing things. Yeah, that makes sense. And so like from an access standpoint, where are we at now? Like Trev, now that you've uh, gone through this process, are there any new kind of advancements in that that make it more accessible to people? There actually, yeah, there have been a fair number. So Canada and a lot of parts of the US now have, um, ketamine therapy clinics mm -hmm. so you can you can legally go and 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 do ketamine therapy ketamine is kind of a 
a borderline psychedelic drug. It kind of falls into a different class, but the, the therapeutic method is, is quite similar. Uh, and there's, there's been some, some changes very recently, just at the, at the beginning of this year, uh, to something called the Special Access Program in Canada, which allows healthcare practitioners access to certain drugs in special circumstances, mostly for, for research perspective and, and psychedelics um, now fall into that category. So research will be able to be done. Um, but what I did, the, the experience that I had, unfortunately, was illegal. And it's, it's not something that you can easily access. It's not something that you can easily do, which is why I say I feel so lucky that I, I had the opportunity. Um, but it pains me to share that story and not be able to say and go to www. <laughs> to do the same thing. I can't yeah. do that. I, I can't even name my therapist because it's it's illegal, and and they they wouldn't <laughs> they could get in, in trouble for uh, for the work that we did. So you know one of the reasons why it's so important for me to talk about this stuff and, and, and share stories like this is so that more people understand the power of it. So the, the movement can, can keep going and, and hopefully in the next few years, more and more people who, who struggle with things similar to what I struggled with, will will be able to actually make change. That's great. And, you know, and I know we have listeners outside of Canada, but in Canada, we do have the Canadian psychological, sorry, psychedelic association. And maybe Nevin will even include that link uh, mm -hmm. with the podcast. Um, Trevor, do you want to talk for a moment about what the Canadian Psych Psychedelic Association is and what it does? I, I mean, they're a tremendous organization that's doing some really, really important work uh, across the country, um, trying to improve access, trying to change um, things like the, the, the legality and the illegality around psychedelic uh, medicines. But they're also building communities and, and, and doing really great work by offering you know, webinars and meetings and town halls and, and get togethers and, and connecting people, uh, whether they're from medical background or a business background or a legal background or, or indigenous communities. And, and all of these people are coming together and, and, and working to try and create this change. So yeah, I, I think that would be a great idea to include a link to them so people can, can read about them and, and learn about what they do. And if, if you want to get involved, you know, they're always looking for volunteers and, and people who can, who can help out. Amazing. Well, I think that's all the time we have for today, but uh, I just want to thank you both um, for sharing those stories. That was really inspiring and um, I appreciate the vulnerability as well. So uh, I think with that, we can, we can close. Thank you all for listening. Um, I'm Nevin Ryan. I'm Juan Yoon, and thank you for joining us for the next Voice to Hear. You've been listening to The Next Voice You Hear with Juan Yoon.